Humans love imitations and knockoffs, sometimes because they're cheap. Uh, I was in Indonesia back in 2012, I think it was. We got taken to the Indonesian knockoff capital uh, shopping centre of uh, Indonesia called Mangadua. And uh, they said over there the uh, copyright for Indonesians is the right to copy. And uh, so it was just this shopping centre filled with knockoffs of Country Road and Gucci. And I'm not even going to say it right. Did I say that right? Gucci. I should have said Gucci. Look at all the, all the females are going, yeah, see, that guy needs to go shopping for his wife more often. Uh, sometimes we like imitations because they're funny. Uh, ventriloquist is a good example of that. We like comedians that do uh, uh, imitations and knockoffs of people I particularly like, and I'm not recommending you go and watch him necessarily, but I particularly like watching Seth Myers do an imitation of Donald Trump. That's very uh, humorous. Has anyone ever seen that? See, now you're all going to go and watch it. I told you not to do it. But anyway, it's very funny. Like impersonations are, uh, are something that we find really funny. Back in the day, in the early days of me working at this school here, they had this uh, event that they had at the end of each year. And I came here from a, uh, a school in Sydney and I just thought, you do what? Like, how could that ever end up well? It was a night called Tribute Night. And it was basically where the teachers and the students, the Year 12 students, they'd get together and they'd write a script and knock each other off for about an hour or so and kind of make fun of each other. Now, it was really funny. In fact, the funniest one was the last one that ever happened. <laughs> and it cut just a little bit too close to the bone and that was kind of the end of tribute night as, uh, as it stood. But... I, uh, my stomach was hurting when I was uh, sitting up the back listening to the way the students are knocking off the staff. See, it's, it's funny to do kind of knockoffs and imitations. And then you've just even got examples like the, uh, the lyrebird. Have you ever seen a lyrebird uh, do knockoffs and imitations? It's uh, pretty special. Here we go. Every rock star has their groupies. But when the male superb lyrebird takes the stage, he gives new definition to the term siren song. Like many birds, his voice is a prime way to woo the ladies. Those flashy 28-inch long tail feathers don't hurt either. But to lure the females in close enough to admire his pretty plumage, he has to sing his heart out. But this bird is more than just a snazzy solo. He's a whole glee club. He can imitate more than 20 different bird species in one song. The more complex, the better. Like the kookaburra. It's so convincing, it even fools the real thing. Though only outside the kookaburra's mating season. But this male doesn't just stop at bird calls. To really impress a potential mate, he breaks out the sampler. That was a camera shutter. And just to show off, he adds in the camera's motor drive. 
Now he's practically one of the paparazzi. The superb lyrebird can imitate nearly any sound he hears around him in the forest, though he rarely mimics man-made sounds in the wild. But when he gets his groove on, he can really let loose. A car alarm. And even a chainsaw felling trees. Maybe he should stick with something a little more romantic. Pretty impressive, right? We like imitations. Uh, there's lots of kind of on-purpose imitations, but I'm sure that you've noticed that uh, sometimes when you just hang around some people, you start doing the things that they do. You start to talk like them. You start to take on board their mannerisms. There's a sense in which we imitate people who we admire. I mean, even when you go to the shops and you see a mannequin in a window of a clothing shop, you're imitating in a sense, right? Because you see it and you kind of go, that looks good, I would like to look like that. Does that make sense? That's kind of what's going on, right? Um, we, uh, we even, like in our minds, we have ideas about uh, the kind of people that we would like to be. And, and then we start uh, getting about imitating that. And sometimes we even have ideas about people we don't want to be. <laughs> and we get about making sure that we're not like that. And even in the midst of that, there's kind of this imitation, this mirroring thing, a mechanism that's still operating there. See, I'm uh, I'm not sure that anyone is completely original. I mean, that the Scriptures say there's nothing new under the sun, right? That's out of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I don't think anyone is completely original. I think it's a, it was a funny thing in the world to be teaching junior high students for about 18 years and see them be original by being like everyone else. <laughs> All right? And that's kind of humanity, right? We be original by being like everyone else. That, that's kind of how we... We do stuff. And far from you getting the impression that I'm just out to kind of beat up on uh, us imaging and, and kind of mirroring people, I, I just want to suggest to you today, and you've heard this well at the project before if you've been around, is I think God's made us to be images. God's made us to be mirrors in some kind of way, to reflect other things. Is it any wonder that we copy things of people around us? If that's part of our anthropology, that's part of how we're made. Now, what, what's the primary way? Like, you think about what's the context where mirroring and imaging and imitating, all that sort of stuff, where does that happen most profoundly? I want to suggest to you that it happens most profoundly in families. It just absolutely does. You go right back to Genesis 1, verse 26 to 27, and, and God says, let us make man in our image. And when he says us, he's talking about the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we find out in Genesis 5. Um, actually, if you've got your Bibles there, let's just go to Genesis 5. Let's read that. Genesis 5. So it's going to be about three or four pages in from the front of the Bible. If you haven't got a Bible, feel free to go and grab one from up the back. Genesis 5. We're going to look at verse 1 to 3. Genesis 5, 1 to 3. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, kind of referring back to Genesis 1. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man whom, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own what? In his own likeness, after his what? 
image and named him Seth. So here's the bottom line. If nothing else, at this point, you should be able to see that being made in God's image means that you're in a family and that you've got some family likeness. <laughs> All right? That's a big idea here. And this is the reality when it comes to uh, imitation and copying is that family kind of carries the greatest tonnage in terms of uh, the way that we imitate and we copy and, and we reflect um, each other. It's so central to who you are, to what you look like and how you behave. All right? It just is. I mean, think about your family and the way that it informs the way that you walk, the speed that you walk, the way you talk, the way you relate, the way you think, the way you do conflict, the way you see the world, the way you're meant to act in the world. I remember... uh, with my kids, I mean, what do they want to do whenever I'm out building something? Well, they just wanted to come out and build with me. What's that? That's just kind of a mirroring and an imaging. I just want to do what God's doing. I want to, sorry, what dad's doing. <laughs> I want to do what dad's doing. I want to get alongside him and do that sort of stuff. You know, even the roles that you feel that you're able to play in your life come from your family context to a large degree. You know, there's been lots of work done, and I'm not going to go into it today, on birth order and the effect that it has on people, and there's debate about whether it has any effect at all, all right? There was a, there was a lot of talk for a long period of time that it actually did have an effect on people. Uh, I'd, one of the things I reckon is pretty obvious is uh, youngest children tend to be risk takers, I think, because their whole life is a risk, basically. <laughs> My youngest son, his life is a risk, so he's just used to risk because everyone in the family is bigger than him and they could really hurt him if they wanted to. <laughs> So he's just kind of used to that. But um, I mean, there's a sense in which our families even determine who we are and what we think we can actually do in the world. Ellen Goodman, a journo uh, in the States, uh, says this, Parents remain our touchstone fellow travellers even after death. They are both missing and present. So when I succeeded, I'd glance sideways and see a snapshot of how my father handled success with right pleasure and a strong sense of the capriciousness of life. When I failed, I would glance sideways and remember how he handled failure, with grit and perspective. He got up, put on his tie and went back to work. Well, it isn't cancer, he would say, until, of course, it was. See, we, we still do that. I mean, whether your parents are around anymore, you, we, we still think about the effect that our parents had on us in terms of the way that we do life. And I want to just stop here for a moment and take a quick... Uh, sidetrack uh, and just talk about dysfunctional families every family is dysfunctional at some level there's no completely functional family that exists and it's actually if you think about what a perfect family might look like and then go looking in the scriptures for a perfect family it's really difficult to find one I mean it looked like Noah was doing all right until he planted a vineyard and he ended up naked in his tent and his kids laughed at him. One of his kids laughed at him, right? And then all of a sudden you go, well, you were doing well, mate. But then we hit the nakedness thing and the drunkenness and that's not a good call, all right? They rarely ever go together in a, uh, in a positive way. In fact, they're always negative. Some families, though, are much more dysfunctional than others, right? And the dysfunctionality that exists in families can have a very devastating and long and lasting impact on children. 
one of the uh, well-known psychological theories um, that's, that has a lot of currency at the moment, I think it's got a lot of good contributions to make, is uh, attachment disorder. Now, attachment disorder is basically where individuals have trouble forming lasting relationships with others due to their failure to form normal attachments to primary caregivers when they're kids. Now, we don't have time to look at this today. <laughs> All right? It's, it's a big topic and it's not uh, right in the centre of where we're going today, but I just wanted to acknowledge that, that families can have a really devastating impact on people. And I think attachment theory, I think, in large part, has actually done well to highlight the difficulty and the trouble and the context for a lot of people um, that's been caused by their family background. But I want to ask this question on the back of that today as to whether your natural family is the family that is ultimately decisive in determining how you turn out. And I want to say, no, it's not. It's not ultimately decisive. It doesn't matter how functional or dysfunctional your family was. Your family, your natural family, is not the ultimate family that determines how you turn out. I'm not saying that your natural family is unimportant. I'm saying it's ridiculously important. I'm just saying it's not the ultimately decisive factor in your life. You know, the ultimately decisive factor in your life is whether you're in God's family or not. Psalm 27.10 says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And I hope that that brings great hope. I mean, there's some parts of attachment disorder that get a bit depressing sometimes because it feels it can just get pretty dark in there, you know? It's like, man, someone's had a really, really bad family background. Now, how can they recover from that? Well, here's a psalmist saying, hey, listen, even when my mum and my dad walk away from me, there's a greater reality and a bigger reality than that. Does that fix everything? Does it fix everything to say, to go up to him and say, brother, you just need Psalm 2710. <laughs> I'll just give you that. You'll be okay, right? You just serve it up, you know? Take that with a glass of water and call me in the morning and let me know that your headache's gone, you know? Like, that, that's not how it works when it comes to helping someone. But if this is not true, then we're in a whole bunch of trouble. A lot of us in here are in a bunch of trouble, right? Because families haven't been great for us. And even if you're a parent and you think you're going to fix a whole bunch of the, uh, the errors of your, <laughs> your parents, uh, great. I think that's great. But the bottom line is you're probably just going to miss out on a whole bunch of other things. Like you're just not going to nail it. You're not going to get it 100% right. And the great hope for every single person in this room is not that we'd have parents that would get everything right, but that we'd have a God and we'd be part of a larger family than our natural family that would reframe all of the experiences that we've had. Now, the interesting thing is, if you uh, look in the Scriptures, there's natural families and then there's supernatural families. And it might come as a bit of a shock to you, but there's actually two options when it comes to supernatural families. All right? And Jesus is particularly irritating on this one. I might just add, and he gets pretty dark on it. Listen to this from John 8 verse 44, and this is what Jesus is saying to the Jews. He says this, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, John goes on, that was out of John 8, 44. John goes on, I'm going to get to it later on, in his, in his first letter, the first John, and talks about the fact that when people sin, they're doing the will of their father. They show that they belong to his family. They belong to the devil. All right? 
Now, some of you are going, well, I see and I blow it. Well, we'll get to that in a minute, all right? That's not really what, what John uh, is exactly saying. He's not saying that you can't blow it because at the start of First John, he says, if you confess your sins to God, he's faithful and just and he'll cleanse you and forgive you. What I think John is saying, what Jesus is saying here in John 8, verse 44, is you can be in God's family, you can be in the devil's family, all right? Whatever family you're in, you take on the likeness of the family that you're in. Is, that, is everyone with me on that? So here's, here's the bottom line. If you don't love Jesus and you're sitting there and you're going, I'm not in Jesus' family, you need to just get in that one, all right? Because <laughs> that's the cool one, that's the good one, that's the right one, that's the life-giving one, that's the loving one, that's the hope-filled one. This one over here just goes to death and pain and just a whole bunch of stuff that you don't want. Is everyone with me on that? Like, let's just get in this one over here. Let's get in Jesus' family and, and have God as our Father. Let's go to Ephesians 5. We're back into Ephesians today. Uh, I'd love for you to, to turn to there in your Bibles or, I don't know, what do you do? You press it on your phone or something? Scroll, flick it, something. Ephesians 5, verse 1 to 2. If you're uh, new with us today, we've been going through Ephesians uh, for most of our natural lives and... Uh, we're going to do two verses today, so uh, we're just going to do the first two verses, which in some ways we should have done uh, possibly at the, uh, at the end of chapter 4, because they actually fit with uh, chapter 4, but um, more on that in a moment. Ephesians 5 verse 1 to 2, therefore, if you see therefore, what have, what have you got to do? You've got to ask what's it there for, all right? And then what it's there for is for the previous... Uh, section in Ephesians 4, maybe even the whole chapter, you might even be able to argue that, but at least the previous section in Ephesians 4. So just a bit of a tip when you're reading the Bible, you hit it there for, you just probably want to stop and just scroll back a little bit and have a little bit of a look at what was said before that because it'll help you to understand what he's talking about. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God what was in chapter 4 what was in the back end of chapter 4 well it was about being kind forgiving speaking graciously to each other sharing etc all right so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at Ephesians 5 and we're going to look at a family likeness the engine room for imitation and what family likeness you see imitation isn't just the place that you go to, sorry, family isn't just the place that you go to for imitation. Family is actually the place where imitation happens. You can't actually stop it happening. I mean, you think about a, a, a mum and a dad having children and just like a similar gene pool, all right? We were at cricket the other day and uh, one lady at uh, a cricket there who was kind of helping to score, she said, can you just let me know which one of your boys are in to bat when they're in to bat because I was umpiring. Uh, she said, I know that they're different heights, but I can't really tell them apart particularly well. All right? And I said, yeah, it's because they've got the same gene pool. All right? You carry the resemblance of the family that you were born in, both in a physical and a non-physical way. And I would ask you this this morning. Um, how has your history discipled you? What's your family history? Now, every now and then, um, someone in... Uh, the project here when they're going through restoration groups goes, why do we have to bring up our past when we do restoration groups? And you know why you need to bring up your past often? It's not because you just need to dig something up. It's because your past disciples you and it keeps operating in your future. 
And your past can actually operate in your future in ways that you don't even recognise and you don't even know. So we aren't in the business at the project of just digging up people's pasts. But we do, want, we do believe that Jesus and what Jesus has done on the cross changes people's presence. And so sometimes that's really appropriate to just say, hey, is there a way that you're operating? Is there something that you're doing here that has been discipled? It's been shaped, it's been trained into you by the past that you've had. Now, one area, I mean, I, I could ask you this question. I say, where do you see your the training that has happened to you by your family history, where do you see that most starkly? And you know where one area where I reckon you see it really starkly? When you get married. Don't you? It's like you get married and then all of a sudden you've got two people who have, who have had two very different histories who think that each other's really novel because they're different, right? And then all of a sudden you're in there and you've got to kind of work out how to get on together. And your family does what? <laughs> you had that moment? Really? Like, seriously, for you guys that was normal? Have you had that thought? It's like that was normal for you guys? I mean, you can push even further into that. I mean, we learn, for those who've got kids here today, we learn how to parent from our parents, right? When you, you watch your dad shave and you shave like he did, you see the way he fixes stuff. You learn at his side about mechanical things. You, you look at the way that your mum does stuff and you just think, well, that's how you must have to do it. <laughs> if you saw good interactions and attitudes, you just go, yeah, let's copy that. If dad or mum brought a calm, thoughtful and caring approach, you just go, yeah, I'm going to copy that. You know, if, if, uh, if they took time to be with the kids, we just thought, yeah, let's do that. But sometimes parents can yell a lot, right? And if your parents yell a lot, it's probably going to be likely at some level that you're probably going to raise your voice sometimes. If your parents were angry or absent or distant, there's a good chance that could actually happen to you. I'm not, it's not, I don't mean this in a fatalistic kind of way. But when we have kids of our own, there's a sense in which we tend to be a lot like our parents for the good and for the bad. I mean... Which parent here has not had a moment where you just go, don't copy that? <laughs> Let me tell you all the things you need to copy. That's probably not one of them. And you know, sometimes we can end up in situations, can't we, where we are so ridiculously determined not to be like our parents that we become like them. Have you ever seen that? It, it's, it's like you, you almost get obsessive about not being like them and because you're thinking about them so much you end up kind of becoming like them a little bit and my dad is a is a good man but it has taken me a long long time to be comfortable with people saying that I'm like my father because I've wanted to be different than my father most of my life and I'm not even saying now that I'm just going, I want to be like my dad and everything. I'm not even saying that. It's just, I'm just kind of highlighting for you just a little bit of discomfort. It's like, yeah, well, there's some stuff I'd like to be like my dad, but there's a whole bunch of stuff about my dad that I, I don't want to be like. And when people come up and go, well, Peter, you're a preacher. You're a lot like your dad because my dad preaches, right? Which makes me a lot like my dad, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> but I'm comfortable with it now. I'm comfortable with it now. 
Because I think the alternative, this drive to not be like one or both of my parents, or for you, like one or both of your parents, ends up making you something that you're not. And you end up being something false and something that you're not. I, uh, I have three sisters. And for me, the gig was I just want to do what Dad does. <laughs> All right? Because he was the, uh, the only other male in the household. You know, and I, as I was preparing this, I was thinking, man, I was just thinking about my boys. And I just go, what do they imitate? What, what are you, if you've got kids, what do your kids imitate? Even when there is no reason to imitate, what do they imitate? What do they copy? One of, uh, one of our kids has learned something really cool from uh, my wife. And I'm just going to tell you what that is. And I've got their permission to say this. And um, I'm just going to do it and you can tell me what it is, right? I don't know. What's that? There you go. See? So Ange does that, right? So my youngest lad, Joel, that's what he does. You ask him a question, he'll go, I <laughs> All right? Just a straight out copy, all right? Because that's what kids do. That's what kids do. They mimic the way that parents talk when they speak. I, um, I was at, um, standing next to one of my boys uh, about a week or so ago and we were just talking to someone. He was part of the conversation. He goes, you know what? He goes, that's ridiculousity. <laughs> just got up. Okay, all right. I think I've heard that somewhere before. Uh, the overreacting, the, the laughing at yourself. I mean, my, I'll just be open about it. Uh, they're not here, but I'll be open with the world about it, but... My family was not particularly good at laughing at themselves. I'm talking about my, the family that I was born into. All right? They take themselves pretty seriously. I, uh, I talked with a guy at the school here who was like the best person I've ever met um, at laughing at himself. He was a fellow manual arts teacher at the school here and he would almost get into hysterics when he did something dumb. <laughs> and I just thought, what, what freedom of soul must exist in that man that he can actually laugh at himself like that? You know, and that, that's something I'm learning. All right, it's something I'm learning, and I think I'm getting a little bit better. But I'd love to get better at that. I'd love to be like this guy who would laugh and get into a belly laugh about himself doing something ridiculous. See, modelling is more powerful than telling or disciplining. You don't really have to tell kids to imitate; they just do. See, let me just transition here into speaking about spiritual families. You know, whether you're a Christian or not today, whether you love Jesus or not, God made you in the beginning to be part of his family, part of the royal family, to bear his resemblance. And we could just go through item after item in your life that is evidence of the fact that God made you a little bit like him. And let me just give you one really quickly. One really quickly is this. Um, Have you ever noticed... Uh, how passionate atheists are about there being justice done in the world and how many of them have decided not to be Christians anymore, or sorry, or not to entertain the thought of being a Christian, I should say, because of the injustice in the world and they, can't, they just can't reconcile that. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? So I'm just not going there because everything's so evil and unjust, right? And here's the problem. You can't you actually can't believe in evil and injustice unless you believe that there's a supernatural being who's good, who makes objective kind of rules or sets up objective categories. 
Does that make sense? It, it all kind of falls down. And Richard Dawkins knows that. Uh, you know, a quote that I've quoted many times, he talks about how there's no good or evil. There's just genes, DNA and bad luck, really. That's all you've got. See, the whole thing just kind of collapses on itself. And at the end of the day, this internal desire for justice, I think, is a, is a, a, a knowledge of God. It's a, it's a built-in knowledge of God in people that you can't get away from. It's a, it's a built-in reflection of who God is inside of people that you can't actually get away from but it's been stained by sin and the good news is that even uh, like your family past there's a spiritual family past for you and that's that humanity walked away from God in Genesis 3 right we said we don't want to be part of your family anymore we'll just do our own thing thank you very much and we went away and even though we retained a whole bunch of the characteristics of God, it all kind of got distorted and a bit wrecked. And you know, the most awesome uh, reality is that Jesus came and he died on a cross and he gave us the right to become children of God again. Amen? He gave us a right to come back into a Christian, um, into God's spiritual family, into the royal family. And I, I wonder whether as you just sit there and reflect on the moment where you decided to step back into the royal family, what changed for you? You know, because Paul in, in Romans 5 verse, sorry, Ephesians 5 verse 1 is saying, work really hard to imitate God. But I want to suggest to you before we even get to that, that when God changed you, you actually started imitating him. Because when you get a new heart from God, which is what God promises to everyone who believes in him, you just start to do things differently. Have you noticed this? Like as you think back to when you became a Christian, it's not like you become perfect, but you already like instantly start taking on some of the family likeness. You don't want to get drunk anymore. You don't want to steal anymore. You don't want to sleep around anymore. You don't want to do dot, dot, dot anymore. Now, that wasn't something that kind of happened because you tried really hard. That was something that happened because God changed your heart and you just had different desires at work inside of you. You kind of became a bit kinder, more loving, more forgiving, more merciful, calmer, like freer. Like I'm not even standing up here saying you've got to do a whole bunch of stuff. I'm saying that when you transition into God's family, stuff just changes. I remember talking with a friend of mine a little while ago who um, he's, he's probably the most gentle pastor that I know, right? And I was sitting there talking with him and he was talking about this uh, foreign student that, that had living at their house, a kind of exchange kind of student all, all this year actually. And you've got you to get this. I mean, if, if you met him, you, you just find what I'm about to tell you really funny because he's just the most gentle kind humble man right he's sitting there and he's going you know what he goes she just got so irritating <laughs> and so difficult to live with you know and I'm sitting there and I'm just going whoa man like if you were get, getting frustrated by living with someone that's that's huge anyway this international student uh, went to church um, went to church with them regularly anyway on this particular Sunday he preached on the parable of the sower and then uh, he said on the Monday she came in to him and said oh, i've become a christian and do you know what he said he said she changed massively she is an absolute delight to live with now and you know what it was it wasn't she didn't go home and work out all this stuff that she had to do it was like bam the family changed 
and the, and the behavior changed and the heart changed and the desires changed and things just changed. You with me? And so here's the bottom line. If, if you're really frustrated, at some level, if you're really frustrated and you're not part of God's family, you need to actually get in his family, right? Because he will change your life. Amen? He will change your life, even without trying. But here's the thing. Paul's call in uh, Ephesians 5 verse 1 is this, to be like your father in the present. Here's the thing. We all know that kids can pick up... Um, habits and behaviors from their parents but it's, they're not the only ones that they're imitating they're not the only ones that they're copying you know they can get into teenagerhood and all of you have been teenagers at some point in time and all of a sudden there's this vast array of people to copy it's not just mum and dad anymore it can get a little bit um, more diverse than that a bit more confusing than that but here's the thing this is what uh Philo, a uh, Jewish philosopher, said, a person should imitate God as much as possible since there is no greater good. See, children ought to be like their father, especially when their dad is perfect. See, there is no greater God in... There is, sorry, there is no greater good in the universe than God himself. So that, that's just logical, I think. Like, let's be like God. If he's the, the goodest thing in the universe, let's be like him. And I want to just give you a little bit more hope as we kick into the end of this, uh, this little point here. Not only has there been some residual kind of uh, image of God left there that Jesus came to help start restoring and then it kind of started automatically happening and also that God wants you to work hard at imitating him. But you know what? God's going to finish the job, right? 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another listen to this one from 1 John 3 beloved we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is God's going to finish the job folks and you will be remade fully and restored fully into God's image number two the engine room for imitation have a look at uh, ephesians 5 there what does it say in ephesians 5 it says be imitators of god as what as beloved children all right the imitators of god as beloved children i want to say this to you this morning uh, God does not call you a beloved child just to make a comparison between him and you. Being a beloved child of God is the engine room for transformation in you. All right? It's the engine room. It's like where that transformation is going to come from. You are dearly loved. And it scares me to even say that. Do you know Why? Because a whole bunch of you probably just sit there and you just go, yeah, I know. Maybe not in a smug way like that, but you just go, yeah, I know. I've, I've heard that. I'm pretty sure you've said that before, Peter. Listen to uh, Galatians 2 verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in... Sorry, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. I want you to hear how personal this is for Paul. 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for... What do you reckon the next word is? Me. You hear how personal that is? He's just going, man, I'm just giving everything to him. I just want to be completely his. You know why? Because he loved me. Me. And if you're still in Ephesians, go across to Ephesians 5.25. You see, God's love is, is an individual thing and it's a corporate thing. It's, it's kind of both at the same time. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's not an either-or situation. I mean, if you're sitting there and you're going, does God love a crowd? The answer is yes. Does God love every single individual in the crowd? The answer is yes, he does. What would it be like if uh, you went home this afternoon and you sat in a chair outside maybe in the shade under a tree and you heard a voice from heaven say, I love you. And you knew it was God and so you didn't question that and you knew that you heard the voice and it was, I love you. Or maybe this one. Maybe you're sitting in the chair and you hear a voice from heaven that says, you give me great pleasure. Like, real. Like I'm speaking to you now, God speaks to you like that. And you knew it was him. What would it change? If you knew that you knew that you knew that you knew right down to the last drop of you that you were loved, what difference would it make? You might have heard the uh, saying, hurt people hurt people. You know, the saying kind of highlights a tendency within people that when they've been hurt, they have a tendency to go and hurt other people there's, there's almost in a weird kind of sense um, a mechanism kind of going on there where it's like if you've been hurt I'm going to imitate your hurt by, by hurting someone else really I'm going to copy it maybe not in exactly the same way but I looked at this uh, a while ago with us in the project about the weird way that evil just kind of ricochets around the place it echoes it, maybe it doesn't look the same but it echoes around and part of that is due to the nature of evil and the bottom line is we all know that evil doesn't get stopped by more evil. <laughs> it just doesn't. I mean, even when we kind of intrinsically, just internally, we just kind of, when someone does evil to us, it's like, I'm just going to do evil to you and that's going to fix it. Because you, you have that thought. And is anyone with me? Like, you have that thought, if I just get you back, it'll be all, we'll all be squared away. And then what do they do? I'm going to get you back for that. And it's evil just starts ricocheting around the place. What stops it? Love stops it. Love is an evil airbag. It's not an airbag that's evil, but it's an airbag that stops evil. So you're picturing some airbag running along the street and killing people. I don't know how that even runs. 
Let me add to this saying that's on the screen. Hurt people hurt people. Loved people love people. Is that true? That's totally true. That is totally 100% true. That loved people love people. And maybe part of even the, the problem for some of you is you just don't want to receive it or you feel like you can't receive it. You know, it's just the, the weirdness of the thought that God would sing a song about you. Or maybe a rap or a death metal song <laughs> about you because he delights in you. Oh, can, could you, can you receive that? Don't just be like your father because you're beloved. You're beloved, so you'll be like your father. <laughs> Do you see the difference? Don't just be like your father because you're beloved. It's like, don't just go out and work harder. And there's sometimes in following after God and imitating God, it's hard work. I'm not saying it's not hard work. But do you know the engine room for all of that is not working hard. The engine room for everything in the Christian life is, is God's love and his grace and the way he's extended himself toward us. You're beloved, so you'll be like your father. And maybe for some of you, just at this point, I'd, maybe you just need to cry out for God to give you the strength to comprehend the height, the width and the depth of God's love. That's what Paul prays for in Ephesians 3, right? So you don't, you just, I just encourage you, just, can I just encourage you to be humble about the way that you understand God's love for you? And don't sit there and say, yeah, I know that. But sit there and think about what are the areas in my life that would be radically transformed if I knew the present day reality of God's love for me and his presence with me right in the middle of that. Be humble about it and say, God, I'm weak. I mean, Paul kind of says in Ephesians 3, you're not going to be able to get God's love without the Spirit giving you strength. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not going to get that either. You actually need to be converted, all right? You need to be converted. You need a complete turnaround. And you're going to be powerless to kind of pull it on off on your own. We we are not here at the project to garnish people's lives with a little bit of Jesus. (laughs) We're here to see people's lives completely transformed and converted. Not to give them a happier life. Amen? And there will be nothing more transformative in your life than an understanding a deep understanding of God's love for you. And I hesitate to move on because we should just sit here for three hours or something. How long can you imitate the love of God? Sorry, how long can you meditate on the love of God for? How long's a piece of string, right? I think we'd be doing it forever because it's so good. So here's the thing. If you're not even in school when it comes to knowing the love of God, you could get into school today, you could get into prep today by saying, God, would you save me? All right? And if you're in grade one, right? Let's just get to grade two. What about that? Like, let's get another deeper kind of revelation of God's love in the areas of, of our lives where we don't kind of let it kind of seep in and have its effect. Let's just get to that level. 
all right? Maybe God's love's got to get into a whole bunch of stuff that's happened in your past. Let's just, let's be people here. Is anyone with me? Let's be people here who just say, oh, I just want to graduate to the next level. Now, some of you go, what, does it finish at grade 12? I don't think so. I don't really know where it finishes, right? But let's just go up to the next level, amen? And, and let's get better at, at, at the revelation of the understanding that we have of God's love for us. So there's a family likeness. There's beloved children and there's... What on earth are we even supposed to imitate? <laughs> Go back to verse 2 there of Ephesians 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Listen to this. And walk in love. Well, seriously, at this point in time, you should, you should be going... Well, how could you not do that? I mean, if the, the, the dude at the top, right, if the big guy, if the father at the top is love, well, how on earth could his family ever not love? That's just how it rolls. That's like you think about the, the DNA or the cultural characteristics of every natural family. What, I mean, you think about love <laughs> when it comes to God's family, like it doesn't get any more central than that. Like that's, that's what they're going to do, right? That's, that's just what they're going to do. Keep going with me. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. Let me tell you what you can't imitate in God. You can't imitate his creative abilities. Can't do it. All right? And humans will never be able to do that. You can't imitate God in the way that he outworks his providence and his plan. You can't imitate God in the way that he's a judge as much as you'd like to. All right? Do you know what you can't imitate him in? The way he loves. You can do that. You can walk in love. You know, Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of God. You know, God is a sacrificial God. He's a self-sacrificial God. He's a loving God. You see, your love for other people shows what family you're in. That's what it shows. 1 John 3 verse 10, if you've got time to flick across to it, go to 1 John 3 verse 10. Hear this. 1 John 3 verse 10, By this is it, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one, and this is John's main point, who does not love his brother. Like if, you, if you're God's son or daughter, that's what you do. That's how you can tell whether someone's God's son or daughter because God's love, the Father's love, and Jesus has come and given his life sacrificially for you, well, the rest of the family is going to be loving as well. So imitate that. That's really what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 5 verse 1. See, it's a whole kind of Godhead thing. It's a, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And some of you just... You, like, your perception of God is like it's God the Father in the Old Testament and he's really cranky all the time and then Jesus comes in and does a PR job for God in the Old Testament and we end up with a view of God that's pretty good, right? Because of what Jesus does. No, they're all in it together. They're all loving. They're all intensely loving persons. You know, sometimes uh, you may have read some of these. I don't know whether you have. If you haven't, you don't need to worry about it, but... Uh, a little while ago, uh, the accusation kind of came out that 
Uh, Jesus dying on the cross was cosmic child abuse. All right? Some atheists kind of got on board with that and just thought, yeah, let's bash the Christians up a bit about there being some kind of cosmic child abuse because God, the, God the Father, without the willingness of the Son, just kind of beat up on him, basically. And I want to say to you today, that's just not how it rolls. Galatians 1 verse 3 to 4, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, our God and Father. So the Father, it was the Father's will that he die on the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's Romans 8, 32, the Father's will. Ephesians 5 verse 2 says what? Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He was not coerced or beaten into something or painted into a corner. He wasn't between a rock and a hard place. There's a partnership between him and the Spirit and the Father and they all work together and they all love you to bits. And the death on the cross that Jesus died was a willing victim. It's always done in unison. You see, Christ took the initiative in going to the cross. And you see here in Ephesians 5 verse 2, what was it? It was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That just means it really pleased God. See, Christ is the supreme demonstration of love. We know this, right? Because every movie that has some kind of supreme act of love usually has someone dying for someone else in it. And they're just copying They're copying the underlying story of the whole universe, which is someone giving their life for someone who maybe deserves it, but even worse than that, in the movies they maybe deserve it sometimes, but Christ gives his life. He goes way further than that and gives it to people who are undeserving of it. He's better than the movies who have people that kind of maybe deserve it. And Paul says um, to the Ephesians, imitate him. I want to show you a... uh, a video. It's a uh, it's a recount of a true story. Um, it's not uh, fictional in any way. I was reading a news article about it this morning. Uh, it happened uh, quite a while ago. It was a um, a father uh, and a son that uh, ended up in a in a tragic situation. I was called to an emergency room to console a family that had lost its dad. I also anointed the injured son, whom the father had died to save. Priests are often called to the hospitals, but this visit was different. The dad was my father, Thomas Vanderwoody, and the son he saved was my youngest brother, Joseph. So I was, I was, I'd called mom and dad, and I was driving out to home, and that's when my brother Steve came at rain. You know, hey, something terrible is tragic. Actually, the worst tragic has happened on the farm. Josie's had an accident, and and Dad, uh, you know, we don't, you know, some tragics happen to Dad. So Tom and Joseph were taking down the pool. I was sitting on the front porch, and we never walked around the septic tank. We just nobody ever went over that way. But that that's where Tom and Joseph were taking down the pool that day. I, I got a call from my wife. She said. Um, Joseph fell in a septic tank. I, 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 think, I think your dad drowned. I, I said, what? 
I ran in the house and called 911 and went back around. I just started screaming to God, where are you? And um, Joseph looked up at me and he said, Mom. So I knew it was Joseph. He was covered in sewage. Tom was trying to push Joseph out of there. And of course, Tom, I don't know if it was the gases or um, just his exhaustion when he went under. There was nothing I could do because we were holding Joseph and um, there was no way I could get down there to get him. There was uh, nothing around that would help him. So we waited, it seemed like, for an eternity for the ambulance to come and the fire trucks. And I don't know if the fireman went down there. I don't know how he got him out, but he pulled him out. And he had, I could tell Tom's legs were just limp there was no there was no life in his legs so I knew that God had taken him and then on the way to the uh, emergency room uh, the man that was driving the, the ambulance said your husband has has gone on and um, so it happened so quick Some might say, if Dad, what a waste, you know? It's like, Josie's Down syndrome, so what can he really do? There are people that would say that, I believe. And um, it's like, um, my dad wouldn't say that. Um, it's one of his sons, so he would have done that for any one of us. That's what we know. You know, it wasn't about Dad, you know, for him. He was going to sacrifice himself and do whatever was necessary for everybody else around him. It was a time when, uh, you know, down, down kids are delayed in all their development. So, uh, in order for their brain to develop properly, they have to go back and relive certain things that we just go through naturally for a quick period of time. So, like normally in, in your child development during the stage where you're crawling, that helps your brain develop. So. Dad made these really long socks for his arms, and uh, he and Joseph would crawl around. Here's my dad. He's raised all these kids, and you know he's crawling around outside on the ground. He's crawling around on the floor everywhere with my brother Joseph. So he just he taught us an incredible example about it doesn't matter what you, you know what people think or. It's all about just giving of yourself. He did mirror what Christ did for us on the cross. Um, Christ died for us so that we too will be able to be in heaven someday. Uh, just a, a great example of you know, what is, uh, how, how valued human life is, that our, that our Lord would come and take on our human nature to redeem us. We're all worth it regardless of whatever handicaps or imperfections we have. His legacy is, uh, in my opinion, uh, selfless love. The way he lived his life and every aspect of it was to serve. To those of us in the family, it was very difficult to understand in the moment. It's, uh, it's something where we've come to understand Christ's sacrifice even more so because of Dad's sacrifice for Joseph. Thank you.
surprising story. It's not even close to what Jesus did for you. And I don't in any way want to minimise the sacrifice that that father made for his son. But the septic tank that Jesus climbed down into is way worse than that. Do you get that? It's way worse than that. And you didn't deserve it. Let him die in the septic tank. Let her die in the septic tank. They did it. It's their own sins. They're the ones that turned away. But this dad is a lot like Jesus, right? <laughs> He's a lot like Jesus. He climbs on in to, uh, to rescue.